0: Part of this process is that if you are genuine about providing options to patients, you know, and not necessarily bias them, uh, you actually can learn a lot, put yourself in in the shoes of the individual in front of you and, you know, think through this process with them as well and, you know, uh, empathize what they're going through.
1: You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with MakeADent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD, Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this episode is part of the mini-series, which um, is um, you know, brought to you by an unrestricted educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb. And this podcast is intended for uh, use by healthcare professionals in the United States. And um, the first episode of the mini-series focusing on management and diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy was with Dr. Carolyn Ho. From Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, This episode, we have another expert, uh, a national expert uh, in the field um, of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, Dr. Ahmad Masri. He is a cardiologist and director of the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Center at Oregon Health and Science University. And, um, um, you know, we're grateful for his uh, expertise and, and for his participation in this program and this mini series. And you know, while the first episode focused on uh, an overview of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, this one is going to focus, dive deep in into the management paradigms and sort of the evolution with the advent of medical therapy, actually, in septal reduction. So with that introduction, Ahmad, welcome on the show and thank you so much for doing this for us.
0: Thank you, Dr. Kala. It's really a pleasure being here.
1: Um, no, likewise, it's, it's great to have you here and you obviously have been a force in the field and particularly now with the advent of, uh, medical therapy for septal reduction, which we would have thought maybe a few years down, a few years ago, like five, even five years ago. Um, now, now is sort of a, a, a reality. Um, but before we, before we get there, um, Ahmad, well, what I want to ask you is, You know, for a patient with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, so someone um, who has a new diagnosis and has symptoms from obstruction of the left ventricular outflow tract, um, and there is a demonstrable gradient on echocardiography, there is clear septal hypertrophy. What are some of the management decisions that go uh, that that you have to? Sort of check off your list or go over your mind uh, before you start presenting options to the patient.
0: That's a great question, and I think you 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 set it up you know pretty uh, specific uh, for a reason. I think in general you you did say that the patients would patient would have symptoms, and I think that's really important since you know in HCM generally speaking, we target uh, symptoms and quality of life rather than um, you know survival, for example, which is the traditional target for a lot of you know, other diseases within cardiology. And so, um, you know, the first thing that we would try to understand is that are their symptoms, you know, directly related to their underlying hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and obstruction, or can there be something else going on? And, you know, we do utilize a lot of exercise testing, or, you know, we ask a lot of in-details questions about their life and what they do. And then sometimes we even utilize cardiopulmonary exercise tests to try to differentiate deconditioning from, uh, you know, obesity, from, you know, this is just being really truly a, a a limiting cardiac condition, and so once once in general, it's decided that the, uh, the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy diagnosis, as well as the obstructive uh, portion of it, are responsible or main drivers of the symptoms. Then um, you know we would uh, just make sure that the ejection fraction is still um, you know in a way preserved, so uh, above sixty percent, which is typical in patients with obstructive HCM, since the paradigm really changes a little bit based based on that. And then, uh, you know, after doing the whole assessment, we start thinking of, okay, uh, now you are symptomatic, uh, you're limited. Um, how would you want your symptoms to be addressed? Uh, medical therapy or non-medical therapy, or we go through stages. And typically we go through stages.
1: Yes, which is, uh, I think, a great segue for me to ask you about Um, sort of medical therapy for, for lack of a better word, septal reduction, or I I should say gradient reduction, Uh, and then non-medical therapy, which then gets us into the procedural realm. And I'm going to just extend this question a little bit, and maybe we'll touch on this topic, particular topic later on in the discussion. And that is that at what point um, would you consider offering Cardiac transplantation as a therapy for patients with HCM. I bet that's end-stage HCM, because um, you know, like you said, an ejection fraction lower than sixty percent. Because normally, in non-hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients, I think even a quote-unquote low-normal EF, which is not a not a phrase that I particularly like, but every now and then you would see in formal echocardiography reports from cardiologists that you know, ejection fraction is low-normal at fifty percent fifty you percent know, is actually very low for a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But I'll I'll stop here and have you answer this question for us.
0: Correct. Um, so uh, probably, you know, uh, we'll we'll address the first part of it and then we'll come to the transplant in the in the second half of the answer. Um, so you know, again, we go back to the concept of you know what are the symptoms and how we're going to be addressed uh, traditionally. You know, if we are recording this, you know, uh, a year ago, two years ago or so, we would have said that you know, really, we're in a way, limited medically uh, with what we have. Um, we traditionally have used uh, calcium channel blockers and beta blockers to indirectly, um, you know, lower the heart rate by, you know, maybe some minor negative inotropy. Uh, we're trying to achieve uh, some relief for patients by using those those drugs. Uh, we typically use one over the other. The guidelines recommend always for beta blockers first, um, which is which is important. Also to mention that there have never been a multi-center, uh, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial of uh, uh, any of these medications, actually, in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, just, you know, in 2021, we had, um, you know, uh, a, a trial by DiPro uh, published in, in Jack, and that was a, a crossover study of uh, 29, 30 patients um, showing, for example, that metoprolol reduces the gradients somewhat. Um, it doesn't affect uh, PQO2. It improves NYHA class a little bit. It doesn't affect NT BNP, for example, or, or or which is a measure of wall stress. And so, so this is traditionally what we had at a first line. We still have it as a first line therapy, typically when patients present. And then, um, depending on where you are in the country and which geography and practice, uh, or in the world even, uh, disopyramid was um, you know very logical next step uh, in in a lot of patients uh it's as you know and traditionally had been an antiarrhythmic but because of its uh a negative a, a negative inotropic properties we have been using it more in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy than any other indication and uh that had to be combined with an av nodal blocker to avoid any of the unwarranted or unintended um adverse adverse events from it but generally speaking you know diso uh pyramid had a lot of issues uh, aside from having uh, side effects of uh, dry mouth, GI side effects. You know, urinary retention. Uh, you can't use it in glaucoma, and prostate issues, and whatnot. Even aside from all of this, typically it either upfront in a third of the patients or so doesn't even work. They they don't have any improvement in their symptoms, or uh, even after an initial improvement in the symptoms, there is a very frequent tachyphylaxis that happens. Uh, With it, so when we even looked at our internal, and we were using it in almost every patient after AV nodal blockers, if they if it's not contraindicated, before you know septa reduction therapies, and when we looked at our data for a couple of hundreds of patients, you know this is not published, but we were just you know wondering as newer drugs are coming, let's just take a look, and at the time, you know I think about two thirds of our patients uh, either you know never filled the 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 initial prescription or couldn't tolerate it, or reported after the follow-up visit that they couldn't, uh, uh, you know, uh, handle, you know, uh, or they didn't feel, you know, much benefit, even though they didn't have side effects. And so um, that led us to, uh, in a way, a large chunk of patients, historically speaking, would then be offered septa reduction therapies. And with septa reduction therapies, the main two ones that we are talking about are Septal myectomy, which is a surgical intervention, open heart surgery, and uh, the other one is alcohol septal ablation, which is an interventional uh, procedure Um, uh, that's done through a coronary angiogram and uh, intervention with 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 alcohol in one of the septal branches. And you know, there's been many, many, many studies um, comparing the two. I, I think the point is actually not comparing the two necessarily. The point is what is a good fit for the patient in front of us in the clinic, and I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, at a later uh, point. Um, and within the last year, we've had, uh, in 2022, FDA approved the first cardiac mycin inhibitor, which is Mavacampton. Uh, Mavacamten uh, works uh, by directly targeting the sarcomere, which is thought to be the um, you know unit uh, involved in the uh, primary underlying Uh, pathophysiology of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy where you have excessive actin and myosin interactions. And with using a myosin inhibitor, the third process is that you use enough of it to inhibit some of these uh, interactions so that you counteract the hypercontractility that you see. And so it's approved for symptomatic obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in YHA class two or three after the patient's in a way failed first-line therapy, which is beta blockers, and all calcium channel blockers. And they remain obstructive with a peak rate in about 50. And so that introduction of Mavicamptin have changed uh, some practices. Not everybody essentially is widely using Mavikantin, and There are certain reasons behind that we can talk about it. But in general, if you want to appraise all the available therapies, um, you know, Mavicamptin, you know, does come after that first line in you know, a group of therapies and in between that and septal reduction. And it, it can be viewed as either a standalone therapy after the first-line therapy, combination therapy after the first-line therapy, or even an alternative to septal reduction therapies if patients want uh, that to be the case. And then finally, I'll, I know we'll dive in more into the septal reduction therapies, but I'll just mention a quick point about transplant, which is very important I think this is a frequently forgotten route of treatment. It is not, you know, on its own a good outcome. Uh, Sometimes, you know, transplant is being viewed as one of the uh, treatment options. It's a bailout option in a way. We'd like to be able to take care of our patients, all of them, so that none of them progress to that stage. But currently this is not possible, obviously. And as the patient progresses, typically they lose their gradient. And so that's one thing that, you know, patients and, you know, some, some physicians, you know, uh, uh, forget at times is that going from an obstructive state to a non-obstructive state spontaneously without an intervention, while symptoms are worsening, is actually not a good thing. Um, it's It just means that the ventricle is failing. And uh, as you, you know, uh, mentioned, uh, an ejection fraction in HCM is typically in the mid-70s. And so by the time, you know, you are 55 or 50 or 45, you have Moved a very long, uh, uh, you know, distance from where you were initially, and these patients tend to be very, very symptomatic. They tend to perform really poorly on functional testing, and they tend to start running into a lot of arrhythmic events, either atrial or ventricular. And you know, thankfully, we do have exception uh, criteria that we can, uh, you know, evaluate them and list them for transplant when they're eligible.
1: Yeah, no, excellent discussion point. So, <clears throat> Ahmad, let me ask you this: um, in, in in a patient in whom you've tried, you know, a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker for several weeks, I take it it's probably anywhere between four to six weeks. Mm-hmm. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Is that usually the amount of duration you would trial someone for before you would consider, you know, altering their sarcomeric contraction with uh, a myosin inhibitor? Is that uh, uh, is that a reasonable amount of time you would Trial someone on a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker. Now that we do have a myosin inhibitor,
0: yeah, uh, correct. I think you know, in general, you would you would um, in a way tailor it to the patient in front of you and the severity of their symptoms. Um, Some patients are really, really struggling, so you 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 might be on the more on the aggressive side, and you say, listen, you know, we're gonna start with this, in, you know, four weeks or so. Let's let's you know, let's have a quick call and see where you stand some patients are you know doing much better so you typically would say let's let's give it a two to three months you know duration and and see how things would go uh but in general yes you're right um if you know if you are going to derive benefit from um, these medications typically it's uh you know very rapidly uh perceived and um it's it's more likely uh, to work in patients who have a little bit more of chest pressure or chest pain over uh, the shortness of breath, and in patients who have a higher, a much higher resting heart rate, uh, you meet these patients all the time. You know there are patients who have a heart rate of sixty and they're severely symptomatic, and you're like, well, you know, we have to go through this process sometimes because it's not really absolutely yet contraindicated in you, but the expectation that you know it might not have, you know you derive the full benefit from this while you meet others who have, uh, you know, a resting heart rate of 90. And, you know, you, you're you more encouraged uh, with the trial and, you know, waiting a little bit to see how, how this is going to pay out.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, once you've made determination that, you know, you're going to start someone on Mavicampton, walk us through, um, you know, just a very practical office-based clinical course for these patients, you know, in terms of getting a baseline echocardiogram what is their starting dose? How do you titrate dose based on serial echocardiograms? Um, I think that'll be very helpful for the listenership to, to learn from you.
0: Yeah, the first thing is, you know, we, you know, and this is not kind of a generic thing to say, but we actually do employ a lot of shared decision making in this process uh, because, you know, a- anybody who is eligible for Mavacampton could potentially be eligible for septal reduction therapies if there is no contraindication there. And so we do provide a lot of different options for patients. We spend a lot of time, including offering them even clinical trials, uh, spend a lot of time, you know, discussing the pros and cons of each of them. You know, the FDA took away from us the ability to, um, to uh, have an opinion in a way in how we manage Mavacampton. You still essentially have some input, but the first, the most important input is deciding or determining that the patient in front of you is a good candidate for the drug and will actually be able to follow all the rules attached to it. And so these, you know, again, we talked about the general uh, criteria, which is, you know, symptomatic uh, obstructive with a peak layer above 50 uh, with, um, you know, the indication is for EF above 55%. Uh, in general, you know, the drug will lower your EF by five points or so. So we don't typically do that. We typically go for 60% to give us some room and not necessarily go into a cycle of start and stop um we typically use the echo that is recent we don't normally repeat echoes we just listen to the patient and if they have obstructive dynamic murmur uh, we use that echo that had been recently done within the last couple of months and you know if the decision is to start amavacampton uh, we do uh, discuss how uh, this drug is uh, not as simple as the beta blocker or calcium channel blocker there is a lot of responsibility that falls on the patient. They have, We, know, we as well as we, we have to uh, enroll them in the RIMS program. RIMS program is risk mitigation strategy program instituted by the FDA in collaboration with the sponsor or the manufacturer of the drug. And that means uh, a lot of work happens on the back end, aside from the usual insurance work that you have to do with the payers. Um, you also have to enroll the patient, educate them about the drug, about the program. The pharmacy has also to con- contact the patient, educate them as well. This is driven by the fact that, um, you know, uh, you can have systolic dysfunction as an adverse event of uh, having, using Mavicampton. And while it's, you know, largely reversible, you know, mainly asymptomatic and you just back off the drug and it resolves, you know, the FDA decided that this is for them is a safety concern uh, when combined with uh, a frequent drug-drug interactions that are seen. Um, So the patients, again, are educated that whenever you use a drug or stop a drug or want to use a new drug, even something over the counter like um, omeprazole and whatnot, you actually are, you know, using Paxlovid, for example, for COVID, you have to contact us and the pharmacy and update us on what you're doing because we have to help you through this and manage you as well to avoid any exaggerated response uh, to, to the drug. And so once we put all this on the side, Then we go through the process of monitoring, which is uh, everybody, this is universal. Uh, You start on five milligrams. Uh, You can, in in, in certain scenarios, you can essentially try to go for 2.5 if you are worried about the patient in front of you, but the general is five milligrams. And then you do an echo at four weeks, eight weeks, and 12 weeks. You're not supposed to change the dose upward, so you can't up titrate in the first 12 weeks. So the easiest way to think about it is to think about it as uh, cycles of 12 weeks. Just make it easy for yourself. Think about it as cycles of 12 weeks. Every time you go up on a drug or you manage the drug or change it, you need uh, some follow-up there. And so start at five, at four weeks or eight weeks, if that gradient, and this is unusual, this has never been done before. If the gradient, Valsalva gradient, LVOT gradient is below 20, Remember, the, you know, as you remember, the obstructive cutoff is 30 typically, but here the FDA instituted uh, 20 as a measure of you know, super response. And this is just a made up word, but it just means that you might be getting too much uh, inhibition of your uh, myosin in, in the sarcomere. And so you need to back off to 2.5 milligrams. And so if if the EF looks fine, but the gradient is below, uh, with Valsalva is below 20, you go from 5 to 2.5. And that's a little bit annoying and doesn't make sense to a lot of patients because some of them feel wonderful uh, on the five milligrams and their EF is fine and they got response. So why they're going down to 2.5, which would expectedly result in return of symptoms, I think this is just from a safety perspective. And so at week eight, uh, same story happens. If you're Peak Valsalva gradient is still below 20, you stop the drug. And then you have to reevaluate if you actually want to keep the patient on this or not. Uh, Most patients, uh, you know, about three-fourths or like a little bit more than half, you know, close on the five milligrams. They get to week 12 and week 12, you decide if you want to go up or not. If they're obstructive still, then you would go up to 10 milligrams. And then you would go again through the cycle of getting uh, follow-up echoes to make sure that the EF looks fine. Uh and then the maximum dose for Mavicandon is 15. So, you know, if you think about it from the get-go of 5, 10, 15, if needed. And then from uh sometimes you have to reduce to 2.5. So it would end up being 2.5, 5, 10, 15. It's unlikely that someone who had um you know significant reduction of their gradient on five uh eventually will need a much, much higher dose. That's fairly unlikely. And the thing that we warn patients from is that even after this initial phase, they will still have uh, to go through four echos a year. So the current, uh, you know, recommendation or the current, you know, program by the FDA, which is you know fully enforced uh, upon us, uh, if there is no you know physician choice or patient choice here, is that you get an echo once every three months, and uh, if you don't show up for your echo, and this is a good point, I tell patients so that they don't get upset with us you know, they get a short supply of the drug. Uh, even initially, they get short supply to cover them for the initial duration. If they don't show up for their four-week echo or eight-week echo, they don't get the drug. And the drug gets shipped from a specialty pharmacy. It doesn't go to a regular pharmacy as well. And so, uh, and they have to sign for it. So we we go through all these processes. You know, it does sound complicated, but once you have a, once you have a setup for it and once you know how to get things done and how to essentially address the, the situation with the patients, I think, you know, uh you get into into a you know a rhythm there that that is you know not as complicated or difficult you know as as I am painting it to be um the one thing to also remember is that the risk of l v the systolic dysfunction does not necessarily fall over time, and so uh you know I always encourage everybody around me to keep an eye on this as they go to listen to patient you know uh, concerns and symptoms fatigue is something that comes up. If somebody has been doing fantastic for a while and then suddenly they tell you I'm fatigued or I have some swelling in my legs, you know, keep that in mind. Uh, You have to educate the community around you. We don't, for example, hold the drug, you know, if somebody undergoing a minor surgery, but if someone undergoing for some random reason, you know, decided to undergo open heart surgery or decided to undergo some, some other, you know, extreme form of, of a significant surgery, then you might need to have a discussion about how to do this and how to withhold it and how to give them some time. And again, you know, this comes with time, uh, with experience and with the use of the drug and how patients do do with it.
1: Yeah, no, this was a, a great summary of um, how to initiate, how to titrate and how to monitor malachampton prescription in someone with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In your experience, and I know that, you know, we will accrue more experience as more, uh patients get onto uh myosin inhibitors and more programs you know start prescribing this medication but you know in in your um you know experience so far um have you been able to if not halt maybe halt is not a better is not the word that i'm looking for but delay the progression to offering them septal reduction or, you know, in your opinion, do you think that they can be stable on malacanthin that they will never need septal reduction?
0: That's a great question. And, you know, uh, there is a recent trial that also looked at this, not head to head, but something similar. I'll, 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 I'll go over it very quickly. Valor HCM trial. was a trial of, um, a hundred, you know, a little bit change patients with where they, um, where the patients were deemed uh, at at centers to need septal reduction therapy. And they were randomized, not to septal reduction therapy versus uh, uh, Mavacantin. They were randomized to Mavacantin versus placebo with the intent to assess their gradients, their symptoms, and their eligibility for uh, septal reduction therapy at 16 weeks. And then after that, they would cross over. Uh, to op- to essentially uh, uh, dose blinded treatment, everybody would be then on mavacamten, and it showed that you know in a very high proportion of patients, you know even more than seventy five percent or so of patients, um, you are able to prevent uh, or change their eligibility for septa reduction therapy, and you know the FDA just recently added that to the label as well. Now, um, you know. From a practicality perspective, nobody sits or nobody should sit in the clinic and look at a gradient and think that the number itself or the burden of symptoms should influence you to go for one medication versus invasive intervention. I think this has to do with with the other comorbidities of the patients. If they have other primary valvular disease, for example, or 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 coronary artery disease that would require it to be addressed it, it it goes back to what the patients actually want and that's the shared decision making we're talking about but the, the 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 pathway of going through this is the same no matter what the presentation is from an hcm perspective the fact that someone has a gradient of 100 is not very different from having a gradient of 60 or 150 i think the bottom line is we go through the same steps of you know, uh, with different expectations, obviously, of, of of response, but it will end up being the same steps of trying first line therapy, then offering, you know, potentially mavacantin uh, or septal reduction therapies. The idea that if we reduce the gradient, and you remove the gradient or make it, you know, uh, below certain thresholds, then patients would not meet the criteria for septal reduction therapy, and If the patients are carefully chosen to be started on on, on this drug, meaning, you know, they have the classic SAM-related or systolic anterior motion-related LVOT obstruction with EF 60% and above, in my experience, very, very, very few patients will have still a gradient on Mavacampton. Very, very few. The ones that would still have gradients on Mavacampton are typically the patients with slightly below LVOT obstruction. So those are not the classic mid-ventricular obstruction, but there are a a lot of patients who have like an abnormal papillary muscle or a very long mitral valve leaflet, or they have a very, very small LVOT uh, uh, diameter, or they have a very small LV cavity. Those patients have what, what we traditionally have called it just below LVOT obstruction, and they are symptomatic. They have the gradient. Those might be the ones that typically sometimes do not, you know, have full relief or have persistent gradients, uh, but, but not, uh, not the classic uh, SAM, uh, you know, related LVOT obstruction that we see. And so um, then the next step would be uh, a patient choice. I would typically say, listen, you know, traditionally speaking, you have to have an LVOT gradient above 50 and have symptoms in YHA class three or four to go for septal reduction therapy. Uh, now this is, has changed uh, with the, even with the guidelines is if any symptomatic patient who is uh, done at a high volume center, even with NYHA class two, uh, that can be you know, uh, progressed to going, undergoing septa reduction therapy. And so you already see in a way that there is significant overlap between the patients eligible for SRT or septal reduction therapy and patients eligible for Mevacampton. And so that's why we go back to the clinic and we talk to the patients up front. We say there is this medication called Mavicampton. It has all of these associated, you know, rules and regulations and whatnot. Or there is this approach, which is called septa reduction therapy. It involves, one, you know, myectomy or alcohol septal ablation. I think you're, bet, you're better fit for X versus Y. And, um, and, you know, it's not one way or another. You know, a lot of our patients have chosen and we offer them that option to go on Mevacampton, see how they do over six months, and then make up their mind. Either they would want to continue on a drug and monitoring or they would want to pivot. And if they are to pivot, then we typically would stop Mevacampton six weeks before, at least six weeks, if not a little bit longer before we uh, send them to open heart surgery, for example, or, you know, alcohol septal ablation and whatnot. And so uh, hopefully I am making sense to you, but in general, you know, there is a significant overlap and I think patient choice you know, is, is huge in this, in this decision.
1: Yeah, no, this has um, been excellent. It's been very methodical. It's been very beautifully laid out for the audience. I've learned a lot with you know, your methodical description of initiation and maintenance and follow-up for these patients. And you know, thank you for bringing up Uh, the very crucial point that there is quite a bit of an overlap in indications for septal reduction, either procedurally or, you know, sort of gradient reduction using myosin inhibitor, mavercampton. And, um, you know, I would, I mean, this is, you know, I would, I would wonder if patients would, you know, almost always opt for medical therapy over, a surgical intervention, at least, you know, I know that, uh, you know, several uh, cultures and communities in the East, you know, for India, for example, you know, patients do not want to undergo any kind of heart procedures or surgeries. Um, so I think I mean, given the prevalence of HCM and I know that all HCM is not obstructive, um, you know, still, I mean, you would have a sizable proportion of patients who would benefit from, if, you know, from this uh, from this innovative therapy uh, in patients, uh, innovative therapy for patients with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I mean, would would you not agree with that?
0: So I agree, and you know, it's very interesting that we as physicians, you know, learn by experience and by you know, reiterative, you know, learning. And part of this process is that if you are genuine about uh, uh, providing options to patients, um, you know, and not necessarily bias them. Uh, you actually can learn a lot uh, uh, about your patients by trying to think up front before you even, you know, uh, offer them the options. If you can guess which one they would choose, for example, and this, you know, the process would may, may you know, would make one actually a better physician probably because you then, you know, put yourself in, in the shoes of the individual in front of you and think with them or, you know, think through this process with them as well. And, you know, uh, empathize with what they're going through. And you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, if the drug was to be handed to patients without the restrictions that are currently being employed in place and without the REMS program and everything, I think the choice would be much easier. I think everyone logically would say, well, I don't want to go to open heart surgery if I can just take a pill every once a day and move on with my life. But that's not the case. There is there is a trade-off here. And so what ends up happening when we offer it the, the, these therapies to patients is that in a way, I can guess what the individual would say or what their would preference would be. Um, in general, uh, the older the patient is, the more they would opt for uh, a medical therapy and the younger the patient is the more they would opt for uh surgical intervention for example since we offer really myectomy to young, you know to the very young patients and you know the, the the I think the thought process behind that which is very uh very logical uh since nobody knows the future is that if i can get this surgery one and done and not have to think about this again then i would want to go for that but i think it's a lot more complex than this i think patients um Generally speaking, uh, we we emphasize this point a lot that you know the younger you are, the more hypertrophy you have distal to the uh, basal septum. uh, The if you have genotype, if you have you know a significant family history, uh, we we just you know are careful in our discussions that listen you know um, even though myectomy is a fantastic intervention and you know you might go for many 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 years without having an issue. There is a subset of patients who. Uh, become very classic, non-obstructive HCM patients who come back around and become symptomatic down the road. You know, typically it's many years down the road, but that does happen. And, you know, we just warn them of these things. And um, but that's exactly, I think, again, pointing out the shared decision-making approach is that with this significant overlap between the two strategies, uh, we do offer patients a choice of what they would want to go for. There are patients that we wouldn't offer, though um, you know, both therapies as equal therapies. There are patients with, for example, aortic valve disease. Patients with primary mitral valve disease, in addition to their uh, uh, SAM-related problems or HCM-related problems, there are patients who would require a couple of you know uh, coronary vessels to be addressed, uh, for example. And so, these patients, we would tell them, you know, listen, you know, while it's possible, if you want to try. A medication, it's going to only address one part of the issue. And so we think that you should uh, not do that. There are patients who obviously tell us in the office, listen, I don't think I can do the monitoring you're asking me to do, or, you know, I live in a very remote place and I don't think that it's going to be feasible for me to do what you're asking me to do. And when these things come up, then we immediately say, you know what, I thank you for your honesty. I don't think we should do this. And so uh, it just tailored to the patient for sure.
1: Yeah, no, Ahmad, you know, I think this has been a fantastic discussion. You know, I've learned a lot uh, from it. Uh, Thank you for your, uh, you know, expertise on this. And are there any closing remarks from you? Is there anything that you think I haven't asked you, which I should have asked um, you on this topic?
0: Um, No, I think we've covered pretty much, you know, a lot of the treatment aspects. Uh, You know, I I think one thing I always like to mention is that, you know, I can't, you know, Stress enough how exciting, you know, the cardiomyopathy space in general have been, and uh, mm-hmm. what what all the all the new advances and development in the field, uh, not only in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy but also in others. And um, I always encourage everybody to uh, always keep an open mind, always you know stay updated and informed about all the advances that are happening. And most importantly, is without the patients and without the physicians who are listening today who are willing to participate in clinical trials and, uh, you know, enroll patients and work with them, we would never have progress in medicine. So uh want to thank all the patients who are listening, all the physicians who are listening, who, you know, continue to work with us on all these, um, you know, advances, because again, without them, we would not be here today talking about newer options for patients.
1: You know, thanks again. And, you know, my final question to you, and this is, you know, the interventionist in me asking you this, Um, is what percentage of your patients do you typically refer for alcohol septal ablation?
0: So we used, uh, you know, we're a a myectomy heavy site and, you know, but we did, you know, a good amount of alcohol septal ablation before the clinical trials for myosin inhibitors became available. Once the clinical trials for myosin inhibitors became available and we're a a very high, you uh, uh, you know, we're very highly involved in these trials. And so, when they became available about, you know, uh, four to five years ago, uh, a lot of our alcohol septal ablation volume have shifted because there is a lot of shared characteristics between, between patients willing to enroll in clinical trials and patients who we think that they should undergo alcohol septal ablation. So out of the SRT population that we have, about, you know, 15% or so end up undergoing alcohol septal ablation nowadays and compared to the rest who undergo myectomy. Um, that is largely driven by the fact that the majority of our patients who are above a certain age and with a certain amount of comorbidities are being shifted over to um, cardiac myosin inhibitors. And a lot of them are given the choice and a lot of them choose to uh, typically would go for, uh, for a cardiac myosin inhibitor, uh, even you know, when compared to alcohol septal ablation.
1: Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Excellent. Well, uh, you know, Ahmad, again, this has been a fantastic discussion. You know, thank you so much for being here with us and educating us on this, uh, you know, evolving field within cardiovascular medicine.
0: Oh, absolutely. Thank you for, uh, for having me.
1: For those of you who are listening, you know, please share your feedback with us. We are very receptive to your feedback. Uh, please uh, post your, you know, feedback on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, you know, even social media like Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, you know, we are uh, in tune with whatever you have to share with us. And that actually helps us in in getting, you know, experts and guests like Dr. Masri on the show uh, to explore, you know, novel topics like the one we did today. Uh, Thanks again for tuning in and uh, we'll see you back another Monday. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to ratcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.